Why are we entering a new Cold War when there's not a wave of socialist revolutions threatening American imperialism, when nobody is really challenging U.S. hegemony from the point of view of a revolutionary overturn? Why was the war on terror suddenly removed as part of American military doctrine and substituted for it was a new doctrine which said we must prepare now for major power conflict with Russia and China. That's Brian Becker, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Brian Becker on Cold Wars, Old and New. We're in the midst of a new Cold War. In this go-round, the principal adversary is China, with Russia taking second place. In the old Cold War, it was the reverse. Today, Russia is nowhere near China economically, and Moscow's performance in Ukraine suggests its military has serious problems. China is already an economic superpower and is seen by the U.S. as a long-term threat to its hegemony. Washington's so-called pivot to Asia is aimed at Beijing. Its strategy is to impose sanctions and surround it with more and more bases and to get Australia, Japan, and other countries into military alliances. If the new Cold War either intentionally or unintentionally morphs into a hot one, we can say goodbye to our precious planet. Our guest today is Brian Becker. He's the national director of the Answer Coalition. Act now to stop war and end racism. He's the host of the Socialist Program podcast. He spoke at KGNU in Boulder, Colorado in mid-September. And now, Brian Becker. So let's talk about what the first Cold War looked like, what caused it, what some of the impacts or implications of the Cold War were. The first Cold War really uh, shows itself at the beginning of the first Korean War between 1950 and 53, where the Soviet Union, the People's Republic of China, all of the countries in Eastern and Central Europe that had socialist governments sided with North Korea and the United States and all of the countries that constituted NATO, which was formed in 1949, supported South Korea. So you had a divide in the world, just as you, you had a divide in the world between 1940 and 1945 in World War II. You had the United States and Britain and the Soviet Union fighting against Germany, Japan, and Italy. The world was divided. And on both sides, there were capitalist countries, or what Marxists or socialists would call imperialist countries. The imperialist countries were fighting each other, just as they fought each other in World War I. And for some of the same reasons, who was going to get market share, what colonies would belong to which metropole. So there was another world conflict in Korea, both the whole world divided again, but instead of it being a battle between capitalist powers and other capitalist powers, this was a war between capitalist governments and socialist governments. So the Cold War was really a war, which in the case of Korea was not cold at all. Four million Koreans died 
in the Korean War, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, that would be one out of every five Koreans. So it wasn't cold for the Koreans. It was very hot. But it was cold in the sense that the Soviet Union and the United States were not killing each other. They were fighting essentially through proxies. And the Cold War resembled this struggle that was a political, geostrategic, but also ideological struggle between two different blocks or camps. One was called communism or socialism, and the other was called capitalism, or as I learned it as a kid, freedom and democracy. But you had this clear demarcation in the first Cold War between governments that represented two diametrically different ideological world orientations and also two different social systems, the Soviet Union and China and then the governments of Eastern and Central Europe. They had socialist economies. The old capitalist elites, the ruling class, the corporations had been nationalized. The private property and the means of production had been made public. It was a different social economy a different social reorganization of society. So if you look at the war that took place, the Cold War, it's between two camps, one communist, one capitalist. Now, there's another element of that Cold War, which was not really ideological, but masked itself as an ideological struggle, which is that the United States after World War II, became the dominant power for the entire capitalist world. It was the United States that revived the capitalist economy, even in the economies of the defeated countries. The U.S. occupied Japan and Germany, the defeated rivals of the United States. But unlike after World War I, where the victors imposed draconian economic sanctions and reparations on the, de on the defeated adversary, in the case of Germany, it was the Versailles Treaty imposing extreme sanctions and reparations on Germany such that the German economy destabilized, which eventually led to the rise and victory of Hitler within 15 years. Unlike that, the United States said to the Japanese and German enemies, we will not only revive you, we will make you rich again. We will revive the corporate elites that we had just been at war with. And so Germany revived. Germany was integrated into the world market. Japan was integrated into the world market. They were not punished. They were revived. But the condition for the revival was that Japan and Germany would then function as essentially junior partners following the leadership of the United States in this new global confrontation which is a confrontation between capitalism and socialism. So Germany, the United States, Britain, France, and the other countries that constituted NATO, which was formed in 1949, were a block of capitalist countries with the understanding that each of them would be given a place, a share in the world economy, as long as they followed the leadership of the United States. That was the quid pro quo in the new post-World War II arrangement. The United States wanted during that entire period to make sure that not only the capitalist powers would follow the United States' lead in the struggle against socialism and communism, 
but that the United States would retain primacy in all of the areas of the world that the United States considered to be primary for U.S. hegemony. And we see that play out all over the place. The coup d'etat against the democratically elected government in Iran that took place in 1953 that brought the Shah to power, uh, that was as a result of the Mozak Day government nationalizing the Anglo-Iranian oil company, also known as BP. So the United States partnered with Britain, carried out an economic destabilization of the government in Iran, brought into power a dictatorship, the Shah, who then denationalized the oil and returned it to British Petroleum, but 40% then went to Gulf Oil. So the United States, in addition to leading the struggle against communism, was also gaining market share and domination wherever possible, and resisting those who tried to challenge that, especially in what was then called the Third World. Same thing happened in 1954, the next year. The United States, the CIA, overthrew the Arbenz government. Arbenz, like Mozak Day, was not a communist, but he dared to nationalize the United Fruit Company and say that the profits of United Fruit should go to lift up the people of Guatemala, bring them out of poverty. And so the United States, is, under the banner of fighting communism, was actually overthrowing democratically elected governments that were not communist, not socialist, but were trying to use resources that their countries possessed for the elimination of poverty of their own people. So in some ways, the war against communism became pretextual to maintain U.S. domination wherever U.S. corporate interests were challenged, even by non-communist forces who wanted to be able to use those resources to alleviate poverty in their own country. There was another feature of that time that we really have to recognize that's so different from today. The differences, we're emphasizing the differences here between this Cold War and the last Cold War. What was the other big difference? was that after World War II, a, a wave of revolution swept through Asia. It was not just in Korea, but it was also in Vietnam. It was also in China. The communist parties in Vietnam, in Korea, in China, were fighting for power and did take power. There was a revolutionary upsurge in Indonesia a huge country, today the fourth largest country in the world. The communists were leading the struggle against Dutch imperialism. So the United States targeting of the Soviet Union and China and the socialist camp wasn't simply an ideological struggle and it wasn't simply a geostrategic struggle. It was a counter-revolutionary struggle because revolution was on the agenda. Most of the people of the world lived in Africa or Asia or the Middle East or Latin America. They had lived under centuries of colonial domination. They wanted to be free people. They were ready to fight for their freedom, and they were fighting for their freedom. So the United States and the imperialist world looked around to all of these parts of the world and said, look, the people in Africa, Asia, Latin America, the Middle East are fighting for freedom to be anti-colonial, and in many of those struggles, the Communist Party was leading the movement. Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam, 
Kim Il-sung in North Korea. So there really was this wave of revolution. Think about the situation today. Is there a wave of revolution throughout the world that's toppling capitalism? Anything similar to what was happening in the 1940s and 1950s? No, there's not. Is there a Soviet Union that's anchoring a global socialist camp that's explicitly anti-capitalist? No. Is Russia even a socialist country? No. Is Putin a communist? No. Is Putin an anti-communist? Yes. The Chinese Communist Party still retains power in China, but is it trying to export socialist revolution in Asia, in Africa, in Latin America, in the Middle East? No. If you listen to the leadership in China, whether it's Xi Jinping today or earlier Chinese leaderships, their line is not, we're fighting for global socialism and communism against imperialism and capitalism. The Chinese line goes something like this. Let's have a win-win situation in the world whereby we bring our people out of poverty, we bring our people out of the legacy of underdevelopment that you, the West, imposed on us, We rise up, we in the last 10 years, we the Chinese have eliminated extreme poverty, meaning the elimination of a situation where their population, 850 million people in China were living on less than $2.3 a day. Is that an aggressive policy, A, 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 a country on the march for global domination or to spread revolution when Your main goal is to bring 850 million people, almost triple the number of the U.S. population, out of a situation where they're making less than $2.30 a day. China's not trying to do that. What China is saying is, let's have win-win. Our economic development is not at you, United States, at your expense. Let's have a win-win world. We develop, we grow, our economy gets stronger, our poverty level is diminished, and you, the, the, the American capitalists, you get to invest in China and make lots of money by paying Chinese workers a lot less than you would pay the workers in Michigan. Nobody put a gun to the head of American corporations and said, you must go and invest in China. They did it because there was a lot of money to be made. This is not like 1945, 1946, 1950 at all, when you think about it in those terms. So even though we have Kim Jong-un meeting with Putin in Russia, and Nicolas Maduro, who is the president of Venezuela, also targeted by the United States, in the same week meeting in China with Xi Jinping, and Russia says to North Korea, we want to forge a, a military partnership with you, And Xi Jinping says to Maduro, we are now elevating Venezuelan-Chinese relationship to a strategic partnership. That seems symmetrical in some ways with the first era of Cold War, but think about all the differences. There's not a wave of revolution. It's not socialism and communism on the march. It's not the Soviet Union anchoring a socialist camp, and it's not China trying to promote world revolution. Big differences, right? So how is it, why is it under these circumstances that we have this kind of symmetry or seeming symmetry between the new Cold War and the old Cold War when there are such obvious differences? 
Why are we entering a new Cold War when there's not a wave of socialist revolutions threatening American imperialism, when nobody is really challenging U.S. hegemony from the point of view of a revolutionary overturn? What's the reason that the United States in 2018 decided that the war on terror, which was the military doctrine and priority of the Pentagon and all of the U.S. government from 2001, September 11th, all the way up until 2018, why was the war on terror suddenly removed as part of American military doctrine and substituted for it was a new doctrine which said we must prepare now for major power conflict with Russia and China. If Russia is not communist and China is not promoting world revolution and really just wants to be integrated into the world economy, why is the United States suddenly shift away from the war on terror and prepare instead for war with China and Russia? Because that's what's happened. I mean, it's quite something, isn't it? They said that in 2018, Obama had announced the pivot to Asia in 2011. When he did that, people were like, what's the pivot to Asia? It was pretty unclear. He didn't clarify what it meant. Well, we now know that what it meant was to place 60% of U.S. Air Force and Naval assets into the Pacific. We should have, if we were paying attention, when Obama said there's a pivot to Asia, we should think, hmm, when else has the United States pivoted to Asia? It pivoted to Asia in 1899 when it invaded the Philippines. That was a pivot to Asia. A million Filipinos died. A million as the U.S. invaded the Philippines. It pivoted to Asia at the end of, or at the beginning of August of 1945 when it dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Five years later, it pivoted to Asia with the invasion of Korea. Eight years later, it pivoted to Asia with the invasion of Vietnam. Whenever the U.S. has pivoted to Asia in the last 125 years, it's been pretty bad for Asians. The pivot to Asia almost always means a pivot to war with Asia. And so now we can see since 2018 that, was, that what was somewhat unclear when Obama announced the pivot to Asia is now clear. I went through a list of headlines that are in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times, every major media outlet. You'll get this drift right away. You'll sense a certain degree of repetition. Wall Street Journal, U.S. not ready for war with China. Washington Post, U.S. Navy not ready for war with China. New York Times, U.S. Marines not yet ready for war with China. Every headline is like why the U.S. isn't ready for war with China. There's no headlines like war with China would be a really bad idea. War with China is lunacy. War with China is so absurd. That headline is nowhere. As a matter of fact, if you say, if you argue, as we do in the Answer Coalition, war with China is lunacy, it is a bad idea, it should be rejected. And because China also says that war with China and the United States is bad, the new McCarthyism, like the old McCarthyism, says, you, the Answer Coalition, or other groups, you're echoing and repeating Chinese talking points when you say that you're against war between the United States and China. And why would you be echoing and repeating these Chinese talking points 
you must be an agent of China. And in fact, that's what's happening right now. The New York Times and other media, Marco Rubio in Congress, is demanding that organizations like the ones that we're talking about be held to account for not registering as foreign agents for China. I'm serious. When the New York Times is writing to me over and over again, why aren't you a registered foreign agent for China? Like, because we're not, reg we're not agents of China. We're people in the United States who actually are exercising something called our First Amendment rights of free speech to disagree with U.S. government policy. In that sense, the new McCarthyism is starting to resemble the old McCarthyism. So the question today is, why, 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 given the differences between today and the post-World War II era, are we in a position where the U.S. has decided that the main number one priority for targeting, for prioritizing military strategy, for contingency, for budgeting, should be to get ready for major power conflict with Russia and China. Why is that? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense on one level. But the thing is about it that it evolved as a consensus position. There was no debate in Congress. I didn't see Bernie Sanders or the more liberal wing of the U.S. Congress getting up and saying, Major power conflict is absolute ridiculousness. The squad, there's a little tiny group of liberals in the American Congress, they, they haven't spoken up against this. The Democratic establishment is all for it. The Republican establishment, in spite of the fact that Trump demagogically pretends to be sort of anti-war in some things, that's all BS. The Republicans and the Democrats are just as committed to major power conflict. I think the United States feels that its grip on authority or domination over the entire world is slipping, not because there's a wave of socialist revolutions, but because China's emergence as a major economy and Russia getting back on its feet after the disaster following the collapse of the Soviet Union has taken two big countries and put them into an independent political position in relationship to the U.S., they are independent countries. They're not fighting for revolution, but they are big enough, strong enough, resource-rich enough, and not part of the U.S. sort of network that they can constitute an alternative to the domination of the world by U.S. and Western imperialism. But then think about the BRICS countries, not just China and Russia. BRICS is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And now there's six new members of BRICS that just... Uh, were brought in at the recent summit of BRICS. And I don't know if I can remember them all, but it included Iran, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates. And my point is that those countries, even before the addition of the new six members, and many, many more countries want to join BRICS, those countries' grow, uh, aggregate GDP, gross domestic product, is to, in total greater than the GDP of the G7. It's greater. So China, India, Russia, South Africa, Brazil, by themselves, without the other six, have more in terms of the share of world production than the G7. The U.S. could see that and see that these are emerging economies 
And as they emerge, they don't want to live under the dictate of the United States financial system. You know how BRICS got started? It was not a decision to form an anti-imperialist bloc. India, which is the largest producer of pharmaceutical goods, because Western companies, monopoly companies have the patents, but the drugs are, the medicines are produced in India. Well, India was talking to Brazil and South Africa in 2003 when a wave of AIDS deaths were ravaging the populations in Brazil and South Africa. And India was asked by Brazil and South Africa to give them or sell them the HIV cocktail so that their masses of people wouldn't keep dying. And India could not sell them the medicines that they produced because they didn't own the patents. They didn't have the intellectual property rights. Those are maintained by the Western capitalist monopoly pharmaceutical corporations. So here you had the biggest producer of pharmaceutical goods unable to sell medicine that would save the lives of other emerging economies because of the domination of Western capitalist countries. So the beginning of BRICS was really the beginning of an effort by emerging economies whose, emer whose GDP is really growing and growing and growing dynamically, not to be under the dictates of the international rules-based order, whereby a few Western countries and a handful of Western monopoly corporations get to decide everything. India wasn't trying to promote revolution, and Brazil wasn't trying to promote revolution, and South Africa wasn't. They wanted to buy AIDS drugs, and they couldn't because of the way the world economy is organized. So BRICS was the beginning of a process whereby large emerging economies were trying to create a diversified world economy. That's different than fighting for socialism. They did not have a vision of a world free of capitalism. They wanted a world capitalist system that had a level playing field so that countries in the former colonized part of the world or semi-colonized part of the world would be able to grow and emerge and overcome poverty and underdevelopment. And what did the United States do during this period? When the Soviet Union was gone, when the Soviet Union was no longer a rival power, what did the United States do? Did it, did it say, as some people were told in 1989 and 1990 when the, when the Cold War was coming to end, that we're going to have a peace dividend, that we don't have to keep spending this level of military, uh, this level of money on, on, on missiles and bombs and bullets? Now we can build bridges and have more money for public colleges and get rid of student debt. And that was the peace dividend, right? But the U.S. saw the end of the Soviet Union and the collapse of the socialist camp, the collapse of a, of a counterpole, as an opportunity to go to war against Iraq and Libya and Syria. And they were hoping to go to war against Iran, and they were hoping to go to war against North Korea. George W. Bush said it on January 29, 2002, there's an axis of evil in the world. And the axis of evil is Iran, Iraq, and North Korea. One year before that, Madeleine Albright, who was Bill Clinton's Secretary of State, was in Pyongyang, the North Korean capital, negotiating with the North Korean leadership at that time, and it looked like there would be a normalization or a possible normal, normalization of relations with North Korea. 
So Bush comes in, September 11th happens, and Bush gets up and says, no, we're not going to have normal relations with North Korea. We're going to destroy North Korea, and we're going to destroy Iraq and Iran because they're evil. They're the axis of evil. So the U.S. goes to war in Afghanistan, goes to war in Iraq. North Korea immediately leaves the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, the NPT, and says, okay, we're done with that. We're going to start building nuclear weapons because we're not going to be invaded like Iraq was. And North Korea does become a nuclear power. And the U.S. spent the next 15 years bogged down fighting the Taliban, fighting the Iraqi resistance, going to war in Libya, spending so much money and time arming right-wing fascist Islamic forces in Syria to topple the Assad government. And during this whole time that the U.S. is spending $5 trillion for endless war in the Middle East under the banner of war on terror, China just keeps growing and growing and India growing and Brazil growing. And the U.S. isn't able to pay attention to them because it's bogged down in endless war in the Middle East based on what? Did the U.S. have to go to war in all these countries? No, this was arrogance. Arrogance. This was hubris. You're listening to Brian Becker on Cold Wars, Old and New. This is Independent Alternative Radio. To get copies of this program, just call us, 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is one 800 444 1977. Or go online or website alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. As a socialist, I identify war as the byproduct of a social system, capitalism. But that doesn't mean human beings don't make decisions. And that doesn't mean human beings don't make bad decisions. You look at how World War I started. Yes, it was a war between capitalist powers, it was an outcome, as Lenin said of, a, of a, a global system that had morphed into monopoly capitalism or imperialism, et cetera, et cetera. But there were a lot of bad decisions that went along with that. If you analyze war simply as a, from a systemic point of view and ignore the element of human decision-making, you miss a big part of the picture. The U.S. didn't have to do all of the things that it did in the Middle East. So here we had the United States not using the peace dividend money to make the United States economy stronger domestically. There are 70,000 bridges that are in need of repair in the United States. That wasn't done. High-speed rail? No, that wasn't done. Creating lots of child care centers? No, that wasn't done. In fact, 70,000, one-third of all child care centers in the United States are about to be closed or are threatened with closure because COVID uh, surplus relief funding is, is coming to an end in the next couple months. So the U.S. is endlessly at war because it decides we can now topple all of the anti-colonial regimes, many of which, like Iraq, wanted to be friends of the United States. Saddam Hussein would have been perfectly happy to remain as a junior partner of the United States. But the U.S. like, no, we're going to show the world who's boss. It's arrogance. It's hubris. It's this madness about power, unchecked power. The unipolar era allowed the United States policymakers to think that they were ruling the roost for the rest of humanity's existence. And China got stronger and Russia got stronger. So now, Anthony Blinken and Jake Sullivan, I characterized as just 
very, very pampered, privileged, rich kids who have never needed or wanted anything, they get to make decisions now. They get to be these big geostrategic warriors infected with the same hubris and arrogance. They really are infected with hubris and arrogance. It's a driver. American exceptionalism, I mean, this exceptionally arrogant sort of set of policymakers leads them to keep making bad decisions. Did the U.S. win in Korea? No. Did it win in Vietnam? No. Did it win in Afghanistan? I mean, the U.S. could not defeat the Taliban. And now they're going to get ready to fight China? I mean, the Taliban offered in November 2001 to surrender. They communicated through a third party to Donald Rumsfeld and said, in exchange for amnesty, we will lay down our arms. We won't continue to fight against the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan, to which Rumsfeld said, we don't negotiate with terrorists. Okay, well, 20 years later, the U.S. is driven from Afghanistan by the same forces that offered to surrender a ragtag operation like the Taliban. Arrogance. Arrogance by individuals who have a, too much power and there's no accountability within the system. After 2001, the U.S. set up black site you know, for torture all over the world. The U.S. was torturing people and kidnapping people off the streets of Italy and France and taking them to black sites and torturing them. Did anybody go to prison for establishing a worldwide system of torture? No. The only person who went to prison was John Kiriakou. He went to prison because he got on ABC and said, the president's lying, there is a system of torture. So they sent him to prison, not to torturers, the guy who said there was torture. So this is hubris and arrogance on display. The problem is they have so much power, the media has completely lined up behind this new Cold War. The American people, now if you take a poll, uh, how do people feel about China? They don't like China. They hate China. They're afraid of China. That wasn't true in 2005. That's because the U.S. media has propagandized the American people with the war message of those who have decided that we must go to war with Russia and China. I'm going to end with this. I do want to talk about Ukraine because the American anti-war movement, I think, has been really unable to cope with the events of NATO and the Ukraine war because normally the peace movement is always like focused on the fact that the United States has gone to one war after another war after another war. So it's kind of simple in a way, although I have to say when we were protesting in the streets against the bombing of Libya, not many people joined us. You know, we had been leading demonstrations of hundreds of thousands in Iraq. The bombing of Libya started on the same day, March 19th, as the U.S. invasion of Iraq, but in 2011. And we worked just as hard to build the demonstrations then as we did in 2003, but nobody came. Our demonstrations were 3,000 instead of 300,000. Because the demonization of Gaddafi was so complete, and Obama was the president, it wasn't Bush, so I think liberals, liberal people, progressive people thought, no, I, I'm going to sit this one out. So that was a problem. But it's not as big of a problem as Ukraine, because in the Ukraine, Russia invaded. Russia violated the UN Charter. Russia violated Ukraine's sovereignty. And the United States, organizing NATO, said, we're coming to the rescue of Ukraine, and Ukraine is the victim. And it's obviously the victim because Russia did invade. So if you care about peace, 
The only thing you can do is demand that Russia get out of Ukraine, right? That's the basic mantra. That hasn't been the political position that we've been undertaking, though, because I want, and I want to explain why. It's not because we support the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but we're trying to make the argument, which we believe is real and conforms to reality, that the Russian invasion of Ukraine was actually part and parcel of a U.S. plan for war, major power conflict between the U.S. and Russia or U.S. and China, but whereby they could find a proxy force, in this case, the Ukrainian people, to do the fighting, dying, bleeding, suffering. If Americans had been sent to Ukraine, the demonstration that we had on March 18th, which was several thousand people, would have been several hundred thousand people, because Americans aren't going to be saying yes to sending their sons and daughters to fight Russia in Ukraine or anywhere else. So if the U.S. is getting started on this path of major power conflict, which became official doctrine in 2018, you can get started if you have other people fighting and dying. Because if a Ukrainian dies, what happens? We think, damn those Russians. That's the basic line. If they were Americans dying, people would be saying, what are we doing in this war with Russia? But if it's Ukraine's dying, all we could, the American people would just open up a space in your heart for tender feelings for Ukrainians. And that avoids the political blowback against a war that in, for all intents and purposes is led by the United States, financed by the United States, the arms are provided by the United States, it's the U.S. Pentagon that's directing the war, it's U.S. intelligence that's providing all of the coordinates about Russian targets. In all ways, the U.S. is conducting this war with Russia, but Americans are not dying, it's Ukrainians. There was an article the report in the New York Times, a study, how many people have been killed or wounded in the Ukraine war? The report is ghastly. Maybe as many as a half a million have died or been wounded in the war. Hundreds of thousands dead. I mean, that's the headline of the article. It's like, this is an immense level of human death and destruction and suffering. So about three or four paragraphs down in the article, there's also an assessment of the Ukrainian counteroffensive against Russia. And then the Times reporter, without shame, quotes a U.S. Pentagon official as saying, one of the big problems that we're worried about today is that Ukrainians are becoming casualty averse. So the article is about a half a million people are dead or wounded. And then further down, you say the U.S. government is worried that the Ukrainians are getting sick of dying in record numbers. They're becoming averse to casualties. And then the article, then the Pentagon official says, they're blowing through precious supplies and equipment that we're providing in their attempt to break open the defensive fortifications of the Russian military, which include, like, the, the Russians have laid millions of mines. Instead of using infantry to, to go through the minefields, they're using precious equipment because the Ukrainians are casualty averse. The language of the New York Times is carefully crafted. They didn't say things like that are obvious. Ukrainians are sick and tired of losing their sons and daughters, but mainly their sons, in this meat grinder of a war over things like the Donbass 
and whether or not Ukraine should be a formal member of the NATO military alliance. They don't really want to sacrifice their children for that. They're becoming averse. So how can you really say you care about Ukrainians and then complain that they're getting tired of sending their sons to be killed in such record numbers? It shows they don't care about the Ukrainians. Their main concern is the Ukrainians are blowing through equipment, precious equipment, in order to save human lives. And that shows, in a way, in a very profound way, the real thinking about the proxy war. They need the proxies to keep fighting. They need them not to become casualty averse. And if you put the shoe on the other foot, when the United States, you know, so many Vietnam vets and Iraq war vets and Afghan war vets have PTSD. So many are suffering. There's, the number of suicides by American service members is so high, in many cases higher than those who were died in the battlefield. And what, what causes PTSD? Well, war itself, of course, is traumatic. But what's also traumatic when it's a war against people, when it's a war against the population, when it's not simply a war against other soldiers. In Vietnam, the United States rules of engagement for all intents and purposes were to American soldiers. If you see a boy or a girl on a bicycle and they're 10 years old and they're riding towards you and you see that they have a backpack on, they could be part of the National Liberation Front. Shoot them. Just shoot them. Kill them. Because if they die, it's not a problem for American politicians. But if you die and your fellow soldiers keep dying in these large numbers, it's going to be a huge anti-war movement. There's going to be opposition. The rules of engagement in the United States were to minimize casualties in these different wars and make sure that the, you shoot first and ask questions later or more likely don't ask questions at all because Vietnamese lives don't matter. Because the American lives matter, not because the American bourgeoisie really cares about American soldiers. They don't want the political liability of the blowback of an anti-war movement, which is what happened in Vietnam. The reason there were so many mass demonstrations in Vietnam, when I was 12 years old, we were at war in Vietnam. When I was 13, we were at war in Vietnam. When I was 14, 15, 16. Same with all the young people of my generation. So at every kitchen table, you had to be discussing well, you're going to be 18 soon. You're going to be drafted soon. You know, that war was part of the topic. It wasn't some faraway place. That's why they got rid of the draft and brought the volunteer army. They don't want those conversations taking place in American households. So the United States is very casualty averse for Americans dying because it's a political problem for politicians if Americans die in large numbers. Shoot first. Don't ask questions. Same with Iraq. They killed so many Iraqis. They just blew them away. You know, there was such a, such a game to kill Iraqi civilians. Snipers would just for fun shoot women and children and civilian men and old people from long distances for fun. Because the thinking, the psychology of the war was they don't matter. Those people's deaths don't matter. Your death matters because it will be a political liability. I think, we think, that the war in Ukraine was completely avoidable, completely 100% avoidable. It could have been easily solved by having a negotiated end to the conflict by the United States and NATO sitting down with Putin, sitting down with Russia, and saying, 
all right, we're going to agree that Ukraine will, as it has been for the last 30 years, remain a neutral country outside of NATO. We guarantee you that Ukraine won't be in NATO. But instead, the U.S. said, Russia can't tell us who our NATO allies are, and Russia can't tell Ukraine what military alliances it can join. Well, let's put the shoe on the other foot. Let's say Putin could have had an alliance with Canada and put nuclear and conventional missiles on the U.S.-Canadian border or with Mexico at the U.S.-Mexican border. Missiles that have a flight time of six minutes, by the way, to their targets. Missiles that you can't defend against. And those missiles targeted Boulder and Denver and Washington, D.C. and Chicago and Los Angeles. Would the U.S. allow Russia to put missiles on the U.S.-Canadian border or the U.S.-Mexican border? Well, of course not. They wouldn't do that. And Russia was saying in November 2021, December, January, we're not going to let you do what you would never let us do, put missiles that you can't defend against on your border. That's not going to happen. And the Russians amassed 150,000 troops in Belarus and in Russia on the eastern side of Ukraine. And Putin was saying, look, we have red lines. These are red lines. Do not cross them. Do not try to incorporate Ukraine into NATO. And to which Blinken said over and over again, those demands are non-starters. Why? Why are they non-starters? You don't have to be an apologist for Putin. You don't have to think the invasion of Ukraine was a good idea. To have the understanding that this was an unnecessary conflict because the U.S. could have and decided not to come to the negotiating table. And during those three months, Blinken and Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, and then Biden later, after they told him what to say, said the Russians are going to invade. The media would say, do you think, to Blinken, do you think the Russians will invade? Yes, we think the Russians will invade. They asked them those questions over and over again. And each and every time American officials predicted the invasion, I thought at the time it was not going to happen. Right? I thought, oh, this is just American propaganda saying Russia is going to invade. But they actually knew that Russia was going to invade. But instead of urgently going back to the negotiating table, they said this passively. Yeah, they're going to invade. Yeah, they're going to invade. Are their demands reasonable? No, they're non-starters. Why would they do that if you thought they were going to invade? Why wouldn't you rush back to the negotiating table if you care about Ukrainians? Right? If you actually care about Ukrainians, don't you then go back to the negotiating table to stop a Russian invasion by talking, negotiating, and trying to see if you can meet the Russians somewhere along that negotiating path. But they didn't do that. And the reason they didn't do it is they wanted Russia to invade. The U.S. wanted Russia to invade because the U.S. is very happy that they can have a war with Russia, the proxy war, the major power conflict, which is central to American military doctrine, where Americans don't have to fight and die and bleed and suffer, and meaning the American people, like most of our neighbors and friends, they might not like the war, they certainly don't want to send their kids to the war, but they don't care that much about the war. They don't care that much because it's not involving them. And that's the nature of what's happening. Now, where do we go? I believe the war will either come to a Korean War-type armistice whereby both sides agree neither side can win, but we're going to freeze the conflict. 
The Korean War armistice that was signed July 27, 1953 is still in existence. The U.S. won't replace it with a peace treaty. When Trump met with Kim Jong-un in, in Singapore in 2018 and Hanoi in 2019 and signaled that the U.S. might sign a peace deal with North Korea, that was then torpedoed by John Bolton and the super hawks inside the Trump administration. But the Democrats, too, are condemning Trump. I mean, you can condemn Trump for everything, but making peace in Korea should not be one of them. But that was torpedoed. It could be an armistice like the war, one that ended the Korean War. Or, and I think this is as or more likely, there will be an escalation. Because the Russians will not lose. The Russians have enough people, enough weapons, that they're not going to lose. And the U.S. has been insisting that Ukraine could, must fight, 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 and not become casualty averse, not worry too much about their sons getting killed. And that at a certain point, if there's a complete deadlock and nobody can really win, one side or the other will try to make a breakthrough. If Russia launches its own counteroffensive, I think the U.S. will then escalate the war. Because they can't, Biden can't allow Russia to look like it's winning. Then he'll look weak. None of the politicians want to look weak. So the logic is escalation. Russia is a nuclear power. It has 5,000 nuclear weapons. The U.S. has the same number, or about the same. China, which really was not happy about the Russian invasion into Ukraine, Ukraine was part of the Belt and Road Initiative. China wants good relations with Europe. China wants to sort of break Eurasia away from U.S. domination and integrate it into a Eurasian trade partnership. But they, they realized they had to stand with Russia because if the U.S. succeeds in overthrowing the government of Putin, uh, Putin or weaken Russia dramatically, the Chinese are now thinking the war with us, the war with China, it will come that much quicker. So China looks at Taiwan right now as the trigger for a conflict in the Pacific. And the U.S. is building what's called First Island Nations, building military installations on all of the islands that surround China. And the U.S. is putting missiles there, and now the Marines are going to go to those islands, figuring if there's a war, a clash in the Pacific, China won't escalate the war and make it a thermonuclear war because the U.S. has nuclear primacy. The U.S. can win a nuclear war. That's the U.S. That's what Blinken and Sullivan are. They're playing nuclear chicken. Again, these rich kids who now have all of this power in a system that has no accountability and lots of hubris and arrogance as a driver. So that's where we are. Just to summarize, is it like the first Cold War? No. The first Cold War, you could kind of understand world, the world capitalist system felt threatened by the, the rise of revolution and the revolutions in Asia. But there is no revolution going on around the world. South Africa, Brazil, India, Russia, China, they don't want revolution. They want to be integrated and treated with some respect in the world economy. They're not trying to overthrow world capitalism. They're trying to integrate into it on a fairer playing field. The thing that's driving the U.S., position towards global conflict, major power conflict, is hubris, arrogance, a sense of insecurity that the United States is a declining power, the idea that if you put enough pressure on Russia and China, eventually their governments will collapse, the same logic that they've used for the blockade of Cuba, 
the blockade of Venezuela. Except now, instead of Venezuela, Cuba, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan being the targets, they're targeting the biggest countries in the world. And that's what makes the new Cold War more dangerous than the old Cold War. Because the old Cold War established an equilibrium between the socialist bloc, the Soviet Union got nuclear parity with the United States, they became equals, kind of, militarily, and that's when the U.S. started signing nuclear arms deals. The Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, the Intermediate Nuclear Range uh, Treaty. All of these, this architecture of arms control stabilized the world situation because both sides recognized that they were in a situation called MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction. That in, in a nuclear war, in a war between the major powers, both sides will destroy themselves. And so that became a deterrent to war. But now the United States thinks it can win the war. It can win the war against China. It can win the war against Russia. That's why they've canceled all these arms treaties that were the hallmark of the, uh, of the Cold War ar arms control architecture. So we're in a situation that I consider to be more dangerous because the equilibrium that existed between the two camps, certainly by the 1970s, is gone. And the U.S., using exceptional arrogance and hubris, now thinks they can win the war. And this is our job. Our job is to try to reach the American people. Somebody said yesterday, well, how do you, how do you make the argument when Americans are not dying, when it's not really on people's agenda, when they're just being propagandized by every media, mainstream media outlet? How do you make the argument? And I, it's, a, it's hard. I mean, let's face it, it's not that easy. If you have a situation where 70,000 childcare centers are about to be shut down and 3.2 million kids are going to lose childcare center and we're going to send $200 billion of more advanced weapons to Ukraine, I think a lot of people, Democrats, Republicans, independents, will think, like, that's ridiculous. Why are we closing childcare centers, one-third of which are, are likely to be closed, but we can prioritize missiles for Ukraine because the Donbass is so important to us, because Crimea is so important to us, once you start to think about it, that doesn't make any sense. So we have to at least go with these kind of arguments to the American people that in order to have social justice and economic justice and rational decision-making about how to distribute resources at home, we shouldn't be spending it endlessly for endless war. Thank you. You were just listening to Brian Becker on Cold Wars, Old and New. He spoke in Boulder, Colorado in mid-September. Brian Becker is the National Director of ANSWER, Act Now to Stop War and End Racism. This program is produced by Alternative Radio. We're an independent nonprofit in our 38th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such voices as Michael Parenti, Naomi Klein, Chris Hedges, and Vijay Prashad. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To get copies of today's program, Brian Becker on Cold Wars Old and New, and for Noam Chomsky's book, consequences of capitalism, just call us 1-800-444-1977.
That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us, 1-800-444-1977. Special thanks to Hep Ingham, Terry McRae, Joshua Escobedo, and KGNU. Jovich is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening.